0: this at least a little bit. We think about the return of Christ, and and thinking about the return of Jesus, thinking about the fact that it could happen at any time, kind of makes us think about our own lives, at least it should. Um, It makes us think about how we live. Are we choosing the right priorities? Are we making the most of our lives? Maybe we don't even know how to think. What should we be doing differently? I mean, if Jesus came back today, what regrets would we have? What will we be doing differently? Even though a lot of us believe that Jesus is coming back soon, instead of that being a source of joy, our biggest response is is almost one of fear or regret. Oh man, Jesus is going to be mad when he finds out about this, right? Or I'm not ready for that. There's a lot of things I need to sort out, things I need to apologize for, that relationship that I really need to make right. There's a song by Willie Nelson, not a theologian, uh, who says... Come on back, Jesus, and pick up John Wayne on the way. As if John Wayne's going to really sort things out even better than Jesus could, right? But, but fear is a big part of how people respond when they think about Jesus coming back. Oh, man, he's going to finally find out about the time that I... I mean, as if Jesus doesn't already know about those things, right? As if he hasn't already paid for our sins. We've got a lot of regret that that's more than a bit misguided. I think there's a better way to think about it, and Jesus does too. What if we ask ourselves the question that Jesus himself asks, what would you do if you had no fear? I read a news story about a woman who literally could not feel fear. A doctor in Southern California was treating this woman who had no ability to feel fear. She suffers from a very rare disorder. Only about 400 people on the planet have this condition. And they've done studies where they exposed her to snakes. Nothing. Uh, They showed her horror movies. Nothing. Uh, She was in a study about gambling and risk-taking. She was perfectly willing to take big risks without any fear. She has no fear. What would you do if you had no fear? How would your life be different? What would you finally say yes to if you had no fear? What would you do the same and what might you do differently? Or here's another way to ask the same question that Jesus asks. What would you do if you were suddenly given $5 million? What would you do with all that money? I can only assume the numbers on the back of our worship folder would look a little bit differently if someone gave you $5 million. But but think about that for a moment. How would your life be different if you had all that money? Well, those are both indirectly questions that Jesus asks us and he wants us to consider. And this morning we're going to do that. We're continuing our series, The Storyteller, examining the parables of Jesus. And if you were here last week, you may remember we said that the the parable we discussed last week and this week, the one we'll talk about this week, they're connected. And it might be a little bit surprising because the one we're going to talk about this week is a pretty well-known parable. You might not recognize it as the parable where Jesus asks you what you would do with $5 million, but you'll recognize it soon enough, I bet. And last week we said that the parable we discussed then, the parable of the ten virgins, is is connected to this week's parable, the parable of the talents. And another thing we discussed is the fact that you can't really understand these parables without some understanding of the context, the larger context. These parables come within the context of what Bible scholars call the Olivet Discourse, which is just a fancy way to say that Jesus is teaching, he's discoursing his disciples while he's on the Mount of Olives. And and this Olivet Discourse, it starts in in Matthew 24, and it starts when the disciples ask Jesus a question. They're in Jerusalem, they see the the temple, this amazing structure, and they see it, they're blown away by how uh, magnificent it is, and so they point it out to Jesus. Take a look at what they say. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, there's, there's three questions. Uh, when will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age? And we don't have uh, full time this morning to address all the ways Jesus answered these questions, but I want to give you a brief overview, uh, just like I did last week. It's, it's a long discourse. There's a lot of details, but let me just kind of summarize it a little bit. In, in chapter 24, he gives the disciples a lot of warnings. He says, hey, watch out that you're not deceived by this or, or, or st- st- uh, st- led astray by that. But those warnings are not the sign that they ask about. He says, you're going to hear rumors of wars, he says that in verse 6, and, and other kind of things. Don't be distracted by that. He says, there's going to be false prophets. Don't be deceived. None of those things are the sign that they're asking about. After all those warnings, then he gives them the sign that they asked him about. He says in verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the sign is the coming of the Lord Jesus himself. He'll return, and his return will set in motion the events of the end times. That's the sign that we look for. And as a church, that's one of the reasons why our church doctrine says we believe in the imminent return of Jesus. Imminent meaning he could come back at any time. Uh, We talked last week about our doctrinal statement. It says this, we believe in the imminent personal return of Christ. And, uh, and notice one of the passages references right here, Matthew 24 and 25. So all this context is important. So Jesus gives them this sign that he's coming back, and then he begins to teach them in parables. And the teaching is all about how to live while you wait for Jesus to come back. And last week, the parable of the ten virgins is really all about waiting with faith. That's the big idea of the parable. During this time of delay, while we wait for Jesus to return, we're to wait with faith. Trusting that he's going to do what he said he would do. And throughout the Bible, faith, it's active. It's, it's demonstrated by our actions. So we wait with faith for Jesus to return, but we wait with faith that's active. Even as a church, in our own unique time of waiting for what God has next for us as a faith family, we still want to wait with faith. We believe that this time of transition, even though it's gone on for a long time, it's not going to last forever. Right? God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his church. God has exciting things for this church. And we have to believe that they're just right around the corner. So we have to fight complacency and weariness. And we have to wait with a faith that's active, that stays focused. So all this context tells us how to wait for the return of Christ. The, the parable we talked, to, we talked about last week teaches us wait with faith. And all that leads us up to today. The parable of the talents we're going to talk about teaches us how to do that. What does that look like for us? So we, we want to wait with active faith. What does that look like for us? So let's take a look at the parable. It's in Matthew 25, and it starts in verse 14. You'll see it on the screens. Jesus says in verse 14, again, It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now let's stop right there for a minute. Because this parable gets abused a little bit, and part of the confusion comes from from pulling the parable out of its context, trying to make it mean something that it doesn't. A big part of the challenge in understanding this parable comes from the use of the word talent. And that tends to throw people off. Uh, but a talent is not necessarily what we think, like being able to juggle bowling balls as a talent. That's not the same. In this case, a talent is just a unit of measurement. Uh, in modern English, talent tends to mean something else, but it's really easy to misunderstand what's happening here. But in this parable, the master is going on a journey. He's going to be away for a long time. There's going to be a long wait until he returns. You see where Jesus is going here, right? There's this period of delay before the master comes back, and the master gives these servants some money to use during this delay. And again, a talent is a unit of measurement, and it's a bit hard to define exactly what a talent is, but uh, one scholar I read described a talent as 20 years' wages. That's a lot of money. I mean, for some people, you know. I did a little math, and if you take the average salary in Walla Walla, just the average, and you multiply it out, then this first servant got $5 million. That's a lot of money. $5 million is a lot of money. What would you do if somebody gave you $5 million? Now, it may seem a little bit ridiculous. It's kind of hard to imagine, $5 million. I mean, it's hard for me. Maybe it's easier for you. But uh, another scholar I read said, no, no, talent's not quite that much. It's, it's worth like $750,000 in today's money. Well, okay. That would still mean that the first servant who, who got five talents is getting like $3.8 million. So I'll take that. You know, I don't need the whole 5000000 Three point eight is fine with me, right? Either way, however you calculate the value of this talent... This is a lot of money. Jesus got everybody's attention now, right? He's passing out talents like candy here. And everybody wants to know, okay, what's going to happen with all this money in this story? The parable says the man entrusts his property to these servants. And all I can say is that's a lot of trust. No matter how you figure it, the, the master exhibits a lot of trust in these servants. He's given them a lot of resources to work with. He gives them a lot of freedom. He's he's not micromanaging their work, telling them exactly what to do with the money, do this, spend it here, don't do that. No, he trusts them to do what's right. You see where Jesus is going here? And it seems that there's a lot more resources at the master's disposal because later on in the parable he tells them they've been faithful with a few things. So like if $5 million is a few things, then this guy's somebody worth paying attention to. So let's keep reading the parable and see what happens with this money. We're going to pick up in verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So let's stop right here again. Like I said before, this is a familiar parable to a lot of people, so a lot of us know how it turns out. But at this point in the story, if we're hearing it for the first time, we don't necessarily know how the master might respond. Uh, Again, he didn't give specific instructions. I mean, for all we know, he might be mad that the, the first two risked his money, even though it did work out okay for them. But he might think the third servant was wise to play it safe, right? See, there's a a principle, an important idea to keep in mind as we study the parables. Most parables have some good guys and some bad guys, or or, or some wise characters and some, some evil or foolish characters. We've seen that all throughout the summer. Some folks who are insiders, some folks who are outsiders, right? But the key to a good parable is that it's not instantly predictable, Just like a good movie or a good TV show, you have to be a little bit invested in the characters uh, so that from the beginning you can't necessarily tell who's wise and who's not. So everybody has a chance to be on the wise side or the the good side, right? So right at this point, we might guess, but we don't know really what's going to happen, how the master might respond to these servants. So let's keep reading. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So these first two servants were commended. And this specific commendation is so well known. It is something that that all of us who are Jesus followers would love to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that from Jesus? At the end of your life, Jesus tells you, come, share in your master's happiness. That's the kind of accommodation we're looking for as Jesus followers. And for most of us, we assume, we hope that might come at the end of our lives. Like we said before, I think there's a lot of fear about the return of Jesus, him coming back and setting into motion this final evaluation of our lives. There's no more chances to do the right thing. You know, we worry about how we might stack up. But we would love to hear this when we die or when Jesus returns. We'd love to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We'd love for that to be the way that Jesus describes our efforts to serve him. But what if you didn't have to wait until you die? What if we could experience that joy even in this life? I mean, if we read this parable carefully, the master commends these faithful servants and then he indicates that he's going to put them in charge of some other things. That tells me it doesn't have to only be at the very end of our lives. Jesus sees us faithful in some things and he gives us more things. I think we think about this parable all wrong, as if the only time we might hear that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, is at the end of our lives. As if Jesus weighs our life on a big scale and... mm, Okay, you made it. Well done. No, no. Jesus seems to think that we can share in that joy even before we die. We could serve him with that joy. In fact, Jesus even promises rest for your souls to weary people if they faithfully work alongside him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We don't have to wait until we go to our eternal rest to experience soul resting commendation and reward from the Lord as a response to our faithful service. So we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to embrace false ways of thinking about what the end of our life might be like, what the return of Jesus might be like. We don't have to wonder if He's going to be angry with us secretly. Because he's promised rest for us right now. And he's invited us to joy right now. So how do we get this? How do we live in a way that we can experience joy and rest even now? How do we wait with faith that doesn't wear ourselves out from all our efforts to do something on our own power, using our own resources? Well, to answer that, we need to talk about another way that this parable is very often misunderstood. So let's look at how the master responds to the third servant, the one who dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Let's look at the last part of the parable, verse 24. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and I gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping, And gnashing of teeth. So, maybe this last part is why we have some fear about Jesus coming back. We worry that we've mismanaged our resources, we might be called to the carpet the way this third servant is treated. But again, I think we misunderstand this parable. When we read it, we we skip right over the part about joy and we go straight to the bottom line. We want to make this a, a parable about productivity. Uh, That's why you probably heard sermons about uh, stewardship or about spiritual gifts with this parable. I know I have. Because we want it to be all about the results, what we're going to be doing, right? But let's look at this carefully. Notice something important. The first and second servant were both productive but to a different degree, right? And yet they get the same commendation from the master. Regardless of how productive they were, they're treated the same. So this parable has to be about something other than just being productive. There's a a different bottom line here. And notice also this wicked servant, he's wicked not because he lacked abilities. I mean, he was, after all, entrusted with a million dollars. That's more than you and I have been entrusted with, right? Nobody's ever given you that much. But he's wicked not because he lacked productivity. I think there's something else at work here. Because notice when the master's chastising him, verse 27, he says this, well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest, he says. So, in other words, even if this last servant had done something, anything, even if he'd taken the easy route, he would still gain. And the interest on a million dollars, that's all right. So, Jesus is telling us that, that living with faith, investing in the kingdom, it ought to be a win win situation. If we risk and we see big results, it's a win. But even if we do small things, it could still be a win. So the point of this parable is not to be productive. Now the point is to try something, try anything that will benefit the master to some degree. The first and second servants, they're not equally productive, yet they receive the same commendation and the reward. The master's angry with the third servant only because fear had made him fruitless. So it's not a parable about productivity It's really a parable about active faith. It's about taking risks for the master's benefit. That's what pleases the Lord. I love how Pastor Doug Newton gets to the heart of this truth. He says, remember, we're talking about the one who risked his reputation to associate with sinners. The one who faced the charge of lawbreaker for healing on the Sabbath the one who faced charges of blasphemy because he not only healed a paraplegic man, but he also provided relief from the paralysis of sin. Obviously, he's not going to be pleased with someone who fears what he might lose if he tries to do something worthwhile for God. After all, he's the one who specifically denounced self-protection and promoted self-sacrifice. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the point of the parable, the the, the thing that Jesus is teaching us is not about being productive because that leads to us making small, carefully calculated decisions. Should I do this or should I do that? I better sit here and wait and do nothing while I think about it. No. That means a lot of waiting time, a lot of thinking time, a lot of nothing time. That's not how Jesus wants us to live while we wait for his return. The point of the parable is that we can and should wait with faith that's active, The point is that we honor the master's resources enough to make his work our priority, to try something, to try anything for him. Doug Newton goes on to say this. My guess is that if any of the servants had come back and said, I did my best to make something out of the money you gave me, but things didn't work out as I hoped, the master would not have gotten angry with him. In other words, faithfulness means risk more than results. Jesus gives us $5 million and tells us not to be afraid. We don't have to wait with fear, letting fear make us fruitless. Instead, we can live with active faith, knowing that whatever we do is under the watchful eye of God who's in control of everything anyway. Here at Trinity, we've talked about this idea before. We've said it in an easy-to-remember and hopefully easy-to-embrace way. We said it's focusing on obedience over outcome. Obedience over outcome. We can simply focus on being obedient, and we trust God with the outcome. Whatever the results may be, it's up to him. We can make good use of his resources, knowing that there's plenty more that he has on unending supply. So as individuals, this should give us a lot of freedom to take risks, to, to do something. As a church, this should inspire us to go all in on transforming our valley. When we think about our own waiting time here, this time of looking for our new pastor, it should give us great confidence that we can move boldly ahead while we wait. In every way, we can be obedient. And in this parable, obedience means we do things, big things, even little things, and we trust God with the outcome. I want to demonstrate this principle, obedience over outcome, with a story. It's a story of a person you've probably never heard of, a person who probably should be one of our heroes. Uh, I doubt that you've ever heard the name Robert Germain Thomas. He was a missionary, but uh, his name is not necessarily in the uh, pantheon of famous missionaries. And apart from taking big risks with his facial hair, uh, he is a person whose life demonstrates this principle, obedience over outcome. So Robert Germain Thomas was a a Welsh missionary, and he served the Lord in China. This was in the 1860s, and as he was serving the Lord there in China, he developed a heart for Korea. He really wanted to see the gospel spread there, and even back then, Korea was known as the Hermit Kingdom, just like uh, North Korea is today. They were isolated, very suspicious of foreigners, but yet Thomas felt this burden. He wanted to bring the gospel message to Korea. He knew it would be hard, and so... Uh, While he waited for an opportunity, he taught himself to speak Korean. He just did what he could do, and he trusted that God would open the door for him to share the gospel in Korea. Well, finally, his chance came. A trade ship was going to take a journey there, and they needed a translator. Well, this was his opportunity. So he, he went on board the ship to serve as a translator, but he also had another purpose. He, he chose to dress in traditional Korean garb, and he brought along a huge quantity of Bibles. His plan was he was going to distribute these Bibles. He was going to hopefully make some converts, maybe even start a church if God allowed. Right? So the ship made its way up the Taedong River near uh, Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea now. Unfortunately, the Koreans were very wary of foreigners, and the ship was attacked. Some Koreans set the boat on fire. And as the boat began to burn, Thomas ran onto the shore, waving a white flag, a surrender, and, uh, and he had a stack of Bibles with him. And a Korean soldier approached him with a sword. So Thomas held out a Bible to the man, yelling, Jesus, Jesus, just as he was struck down and killed. So Robert Thomas was only able to set foot on the bank of the river in Korea. The only conversation he had with a Korean was to scream the words Jesus Jesus as he was stabbed to death. The Bibles he carrying he just dropped on the ground. He did not make a single Korean convert to Christianity. He didn't establish any churches by all accounts. His mission was a failure. So let me ask you, what do you think he heard when he died? Did he hear the same commendation as the servants in this parable? Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Certainly things did not turn out the way he hoped they would, but he did something. He took a risk. That's the same kind of obedience that God wants from each of us. Now maybe God's not asking you to learn Korean or to go risk your life, but God might be calling you to have that frank conversation with your friend or your coworker. That's sometimes just as scary for us. If everybody in the office suddenly knows you're a Christian, how are they going to start treating you? How are things going to be more difficult for you, right? What problems is it going to bring your way? When we first moved into our house, my wife and I, we introduced ourselves to the neighbors. They were great people. And, and then they found out we were Christians. It was months before they would even make eye contact with us, right? But God doesn't want fear to make us Fruitless. He wants us to share in his joy. God wants us to focus on obedience and trust him with the outcome. That's the beauty of this Robert Germain Thomas story. He did what God asked him to do. So what do you think he heard when he died? As you think about your answer, let me give you the rest of the story. 24 years later, Another missionary went to Korea. Things were a little bit different by now. He was able to make contact with some local people. When the locals heard this missionary talking about Jesus, the people said, oh, you've got to go and meet this person. So they took him to the home of a government official named Pak Young sik Pak Young sik had been out at that river 24 years earlier. He had seen Robert Thomas when he died. And Pak Young sik took those Bibles that were thrown down on the riverbank, and he took them. And he used them to wallpaper his house. So people would come from all over the area to read the Bible on his walls. So 24 years later, the result of Robert Thomas doing nothing more than running ashore and dropping a handful of Bibles, there was this tiny, fledgling Christian community that read the Bible on the walls of this home in this village in Korea. So Robert Thomas' willingness to be obedient in spite of the outcome resulted in the very first Korean Christians. His obedience had an amazing outcome. So let me ask you again, what kind of greeting do you think he got when he died? Well, you and I, we don't have to wait till we die to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God invites us to share in his happiness, his joy, right now as we pursue active obedience. We've been given amazing resources we're all millionaires even the laziest ones among us have been given riches through Christ and as we wait for his return as we wait with faith we got to wait with faith that's active that puts obedience over outcome willing to take risks with what God has given us the world places so much emphasis on success and productivity it's easy for us to get caught up in that We easily can get the idea that good results equal success and poor results equal failure. That's why we only hear success stories. That's why nobody's ever heard of Robert Jermaine Thomas before. But the good news tells us that in God's kingdom, the only thing that really counts is obedience. The outcomes are up to God. Obedience is the way that we can hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. Right here and now. Living with obedience That's how we wait with faith for Christ to return and to commend us. So what would you do if you had no fear? If you had unlimited resources given to you, what would you do? I want us to take some time to think about that, to personalize this idea. I want to invite you to close your eyes and just reflect for a moment. Just take a moment to think about your own life. Maybe hearing this idea, obedience over outcome, makes you think of a particular situation in your life. Maybe you've been playing it safe, making the calculated choice, waiting around. Maybe you've let fear kind of justify you in doing nothing. Maybe you've let fear stop you from doing what God wants you to do. I want you to just think about that. What does obedience look like in your life? Where is God nudging you? Maybe for you, it's a relationship, one you know you've got to take a step, you've got to have that conversation. Maybe that's where God's nudging you. Maybe for you, it has to do with how you're using your own resources, not holding things back, not playing it safe, just just be willing to go for it, be generous in some wild way. Maybe for you, God's just nudging you in your engagement here at church. Maybe God's nudging you to get more involved, but you've let fear keep you from doing that. I mean, everybody here is messy. Come on in. The water's fine. Maybe that's what God wants for you. So as you think about this, think about your own life. You can just flip over your sermon notes, flip them over to the back, and just take some time to write down what God's telling you so you don't lose track of it. I'm going to give you a minute to do that, and then we'll pray. Father God, our strong desire is to be commended by you. At the end of our life, that's what we want. And yet, you've taught us that we don't have to wait. That we can find that kind of commendation in you, even here and now. That obedience is the path towards that. And we want to be obedient to you. We know that that means... Not just using our own resources, not just trusting in our own skills and abilities, but surrendering ourselves to you. Like we sang about this morning, just just opening our hands to you, knowing that we're not holding anything back, we're just laying ourselves down before you, God. That's what we want. That's what we want for our lives. That's what we want for our church and I pray that you would take these thoughts that have come to us, these ideas that you've given us about our own situations, I pray that you would take those and, and lock them into our minds, lock them into our hearts so they, they don't disappear on a Sunday afternoon as we get distracted by the busyness of life, but that that, that, that becomes the thing that you want us to be focused on, that, that whatever step that... We have to take, Lord, you give us the ability to take it, you, you give us the desire to take it, and give us the, the resources that we need to be able to, to, to take the steps that you want us to take, Lord, and we, we praise you for the outcome, knowing that, uh, that you're in control and we have freedom to, to not worry about that, we just take steps of obedience, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.